Welcome to the Optimal Performance Guide, where we have conversations with high-level humans to provide clear guidance to the mindset and habits required for optimal performance. I'm your host, Rory Cordial. Okay, guys, I'm very excited to have my good friend James Valentine on the show today. James is literally one of the nicest humans you could ever meet and an insanely talented musician and songwriter. He is the lead guitarist for Maroon 5, which is one of the most successful bands of all time. They've won multiple Grammys, AMAs, and a ton of other awards. The majority of the band has been together for 20 years and show no signs of slowing down, so lots of new music coming our way including a new album the band is currently working on during this pandemic. In this episode, we cover the never-ending path to mastery, how a deeper understanding of time and sound are fundamental to his journey towards mastery, how he constantly recalibrates on stage to come in and out of a state of flow, how nerves and anxiety around performance impact him and tools he uses to overcome these feelings and emotions. And something unique about James is he has done several 10-day silent retreats and is a very educated and practiced meditator. He believes everyone could benefit from a long retreat like this, but knows very few will actually do it. And the true benefits of any mindfulness practice are found in actually doing the work. So, In light of this, James gives us a special gift at the end of this episode by guiding us through a 10-day silent retreat in one minute. You may be asking, how is that possible? Well, to find out, you'll just have to listen. Okay, enough talking. Let's get to the show. James, thanks for joining us today. No problem. It's my pleasure. Yeah, appreciate it. So, a little bit of technical difficulty trying to get on this uh, podcast today. So, if I'm one of your bandmates and we're about to go on and you notice I'm like kind of freaking out, maybe things haven't been going right or something right before, what do you tell me? How do oh, I Oh, good, good question. about to walk out. Well, if it's one of my bandmates, I don't really say anything to them because... We've, we've done it. We've been in, in enough of those situations mm-hmm. that I think that, that, that we know how to, to deal with it. And, and for, for some of my bandmates, I think uh, the worst thing to say to them right before we went out would be anything. <laughs> <laughs> like, hey, it's fine. Just relax. <laughs> Don't tell me to relax. <laughs> no. Uh, but the general advice, uh, you know, I think as someone who's dealt with, with nerves uh, b- before performances, I think the general advice that I'd give to anybody is just to uh, kind of do your best to observe, observe the feelings of the sensations of, uh, of the nerves, of the anxiety, and try to, try to just uh, witness it as, as kind of a detached observer. That's easier said than done, but I think that's, that's a huge key. Wait, why your bandmates? Are they not ready to receive uh, input? No. <laughs> have you guys been together too long or what? Oh, no. No, I, I only say that because um, we've been doing this for 20 years. And we have these conversations a lot of the time. Or we have over the years. And I, I think, think for us as performers, I think one of the things that that experience has given us, all of us, uh, is the ability to go out and be able to perform in any sort of circumstance at any time in any sort of state of mind. Yeah. And I think that's, that's part of, of being a, a pro mm-hmm. uh, at, at anything you do. You know, you look at those, those tennis players who, who get out there, whether or not they have a flu or, or anything else, and they can just go and turn it on on a dime. Uh, and I think, I think we have that ability. Yeah. Uh, after, after all these years, I mean, certainly we get up there and make mistakes and <laughs> screw up, but, but, uh, so 
And, and also, I think that there's certain tools that you have in your toolkit mm-hmm. that you develop over a certain amount of years. And so I think, you know, walking up for a performance, you have the tools that you have. So right before a performance, to try to tell someone like, hey, do this different from how you know how to do it. That's not the right time. Mm-hmm. The time is maybe after the performance, before the next one, be like, hey, uh, you know, maybe you could look at, at the way you're approaching this. But when you're in the moment, it's almost too late. It's, it's, it's like if, if I'm working on a new lick that's technically challenging, I need to be able to nail that a million times in my bedroom before I can take it out to the stage. I can't just decide on stage like, oh, hey, I'm going to play this thing because I'll just fall on my face. So, yeah. so you need to develop those skills outside of the performance and then, then bring them in. That's good that advice. Makes <laughs> it makes perfect sense. It almost, but I have a, f- a friend that we've connected over the last few years that used to be, that was a Navy SEAL and in the military. And it just made me think of that idea of like with a, a, a close team like that, there's like an expectation, like, you know, the person has your back and like, there's a certain level of, like you said, being a professional, Well, it's kind of like, there's an expectation amongst a high level group to show up. There's like this, like knowing expectation as a team that the person next to me is going to show up and be there for me. I'm going to be there for them. Yes. We've developed uh, that support system over years and years. And I think, especially in the the early days, uh, there were moments where certain people were called out for, for things that they were doing on stage or maybe not fully bringing it. Um, I'd been called out you know, for maybe taking uh too many creative chances on stage during you know, some songs. <laughs> and, and Why? So, Does that pull away from the performance for, for other people? Sure. Yeah, sure. Like, because there's, I think it's, it's another thing about being a, a, a professional performer. You want to go out and, and perform for yourself. You're, you're performing these songs night after night. Mm-hmm. So, so maybe to keep yourself entertained, you want to try some different things from night to night. Maybe it's not the best thing for the songs or the overall performance. Um, you know, because I, I grew up wanting to play jazz, which is an improvised music. So when we first started touring, I wanted to explore the space of these songs. <laughs> and that wasn't always the best uh, aesthetic choice for the songs. So as a unit, the guys brought me, you know, sat me down and, and let me know. And I think the band became tighter. The performances got better. And I I think there were a million little adjustments like that to where we don't have to talk about too much these days because we know what's expected of us. We know that we're going to bring it because, uh, of our respect for each other and our respect for the audience. So that's, that's why I say we, we don't talk about that as much. That being said, we, we still have our, our moments. We had, we had some, some problems uh, during some, some recent tours that we, we got through. Um, communication in a band or on a team is so important and, and being able to express those things in, in an open sort of dialogue is, is very helpful. That's amazing. 20 years you guys been together, right? Yeah. I mean, I met them in, in 2000. I officially joined in 2001. So it's been a, it's been a long trip. I was going to, you brought up the jazz and filling the space and that creativity. Maybe two questions. When they sat you down and you kind of put you in the box more around our sound and what, and we're delivering this as a, as a group, did that unlock any creativity within that space? And then maybe second, like, do you still feel like that need to fill that space, like to go outside and practice jazz or other things? To Yeah. Well, on the, the first question, there can be freedom and limitations. Mm-hmm. And so what I got into for my role in this band was really I discovered that that these parts that we were playing from night to night, they they could become almost almost like a meditative experience, because a, a large part of what I'm doing throughout the show is 
I'm playing rhythm guitar. I'm there to support, to be a part of this interlocking groove, rhythmic foundation that is supporting Adam, who is singing the melody. And obviously the melody and the lyrics, that's, that's the most important part of the song. Mm-hmm. That's what people are really connecting to. We're there in a supportive role. So I really got into studying a lot of the great rhythm guitar players and, and really just trying to figure out how to maintain a, a hypnotic type of groove. And that becomes a meditative sort of experience and, and where you really have to listen to, you have to listen to the band, you have to listen to the drummer specifically for me. Um, and then you have to listen to what you're doing. And then on a, on a moment to moment basis, fit into that pocket, fit into that groove. And you could spend your whole life doing that with a very simple rhythm part and you'll never completely master it. It, you can go on autopilot and, and when you're really in that flow sort of zone, it, it is autopilot, but it's not exactly autopilot because if you get distracted and, and carried away into something else, um, you might, you might lose it. So it's, it's this constant sort of recalibration of like, okay, I'm focusing in on it, but I'm not, I'm also not focusing so hard that I'm, I'm not allowing the, the emotion of the music to get in, yeah. but, but I'm not so relaxed that I'm like thinking about what I'm going to eat after the show. Yeah. So it's, it's, and it was, you know, from, from Buddhism, they talk about apparently the, the Buddha was talk would always use an analogy of a, of a string uh, on whatever their stringed instrument was at that time. It could be too loose or it could be too tight. And so you want to find that sort of, middle ground. So I really got into to trying to find that within the performances. And if, if I can switch to that sort of mentality, then the whole performance becomes almost like a meditation. And it's, it's a really satisfying feeling to settle into a groove with a band and all the guys that I play with are really great musicians. So it's just this, 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 thing that comes together and becomes this thing that's bigger than all of us. It's like the Power Rangers when they come yeah, together. That's, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, or Transformers, do they do that too? Or no, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, the Transformers but, come together too. Right? Or no, that was the, the, didn't the GoBots come together? Okay. I don't know. I don't know. But, but yeah. That, that's really like an amazing discovery. It made me think about... Uh, like just meditating on the breath, coming back to your breath and where you have that focus, a thought comes in and you let it go. You don't fall like wander with it. And, and I love the dynamic nature of flow, how you're describing it. Like it's, it's always changing like little micro adjustments yeah, yeah. when you're in it. Totally. And on the second question, yeah, there's a whole other type of music that, that I still enjoy practicing and, and playing for fun and, and studying which would, you could sort of loosely term as jazz. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, that's still a, a source of inspiration for what I do within Maroon 5, even though what Maroon 5 does is it's pop music. So it's uh, by its nature, it's, it, it's less, it's more inclusive. Uh, the music can be understood and enjoyed by more people than, than something like jazz, which might have a, a higher level of entry of understanding to really start enjoying it. Mm-hmm. Although, I mean, I, you can say that, but if you listen to the masters like Miles Davis or John Coltrane, uh, you don't have to, to know anything about music to, to be really emotionally struck by that music. So maybe that's the wrong way to put it, but let's say that there's some stuff that I study in jazz that I, I wouldn't really be able to just throw into a Maroon 5 song, but it still inspires that whole process of, of creation and, and inspiration. I love music. And I think a lot of people love music. It's so universal and brings us together. And it's interesting to me that there's this fundamental structure that seems to fit 
a large percentage of popular songs. When you're writing, are you conscious of that structure and trying to fit that general mold or are you just more freely writing? When you're writing, you want to be in the mindset of being as free as possible. And you, you want to, you want to just splurge. You want to just put it out there because if you're, if you have an editor in your brain while you're writing, you'll never get anything done. So uh, I try to write first thing in the morning before I've really done anything else, or at least when I've been really productive in the past, I've set aside the morning and I, I try to really not look at my phone or get involved with anything else so that I can use my fresh consciousness in the morning to be purely creative. And that's, that's when I found it. I can sort of beat the editor. I can, get the work in before the editor is really woken up. But then, then you can look at sort of, of, of uh, what you've created and, and those formulas, they can be really helpful to know where certain things go. When I was younger, I was really into non-traditional forms of music. I was really into progressive rock. I was really into bands like Rush and I was into Frank Zappa and these guys, consciously bucked those sort of formulas. And that was really exciting to listen to. So I think a lot of the first type of music that my bands were making when I was younger, we didn't care about those sorts of formulas. But you see how the formulas work and how it, it, they can be the best vehicle to distill your ideas down to resonate with the, the most amount of people. Because you have to put them in, into a form that people can understand and digest in three and a half minutes and mm -hmm. three and a half minutes that that seems to be about the right amount of time that you can hold someone's attention through a pop song. And, but, you know, I, I listened to records growing up by rush and stuff that were like, you know, a side of a record was one song, you know, <laughs> just kept on going. <laughs> so, but you find out, I think as the longer you're around, the songs that people are drawn to have more elements of that popular formula. I'm curious on your um, fundamentals. So like tennis, I know you, you were playing tennis. Shout out to Christian Straka and Mike yeah. and Bob Bryan, who are the reason That's right. I met you. So That's grateful right. for those guys. But you know, so tennis, forehands, cross court, forehands, forehand up the line, backhands, serves, volleys, every practice. Those are fundamentals to the game that over years, on this path of mastery, like Federer's forehand and my forehand, they're still called a forehand, but they're much different, right? Like yeah. the depth that he has. Is there, with the guitar, is there, what are the fundamentals? The fundamentals on any instrument are time and sound. And shout out to Yannick Wisdala. That's, he's, he's always broken it down that way. And I, I think that's, that's affected the way that I think about it because I mean, there's a million different little things you could say fundamentally. Okay. You need to know your chord voicings. You need to know your scales. You have to have your picking technique down, you know, your alternate picking. Uh, you have to have certain strumming patterns down. You have to finger style things you need to know, but it all comes down. You can break it down even more to just time and sound, which, which means, always practicing with the metronome is, is really important. Uh, oh, what do you have a guitar? Would you be able to grab one and speak with your guitar? Well, plugged in, but, um, you know, so there's, you know, you, you, you need to know your chords. You need to understand yeah. music theory, but does it sound good? <laughs> you know, I think a lot of, a lot of times guitar players, they can focus on uh, learning all this crazy stuff on the guitar, but sitting down and actually just playing, you know, the most simple thing, like, does it sound good? Yeah. That's why I, th I think like, like recording yourself playing can be very instructive. And that's another, another teacher. Uh, well, he's, he's a player, but he's, he's been doing, uh, he's been doing these, these Patreon lessons that I've been, I've been watching during the quarantine. Wayne Krantz. He's, he's Wayne big Krantz into this. 
Wayne Krantz, yeah. He, um, and he wrote a book called The Improviser's OS. And he has a process of, of playing on different parts of the neck, recording yourself, and then being really brutally honest about what you hear. Because I think a lot of players, they just want to get on to the next thing. But, you know, something really simple to break it down. And does it sound good? I think a lot of people bypass that to think like, oh, well, if, if, I'm, if I learn all XX scales and, and this, then I'll, I'll be able to play. But I think it's a process about actually listening to yourself, becoming really honest with how it sounds and on a really micro level, making tiny, tiny improvements. Um, and that's, that's easier said than done. I'm still trying to figure out how to do it. I'm in here every day trying to figure it out. There's, there's a lot to learn also from just studying your heroes, studying, studying the, the guys that you want to sound like. And Who are trying those guys? to, for me, um, I mean, there's, there's so many, I'm, I'm inspired by so many people, but Nile Rogers is like my favorite pop guitarist probably. And he's been super influential in the way that I approach the guitar within Maroon 5. Um, but I love jazz players like Pat Metheny and John Schofield and Bill Frisell. And I just think they're incredible. Um, and they're a constant source of inspiration. Are these guys younger, same age, older? Does it matter? Um, these guys are older. There's a bunch of guys that are now way younger than me that I'm super inspired by. There's a, a guitarist named Julian Lodge, who's incredible. There's a huge list of guys. And it's amazing now with the internet, how, how much access you have to, to these guys. And, and most of the guys now that you, you hear that you look up to, they've got YouTube videos breaking down specific techniques and the way they approach things. It's incredible. I mean, none of that stuff was obviously around when I was starting to play. Uh, we just were, we had CDs we were just pausing them and <laughs> trying yeah. to figure it all out. And then, you know, every once in a while, one of these guys would put out a DVD of breaking down their technique and you'd go buy that and, and try to be pausing that. But it, now everything's on YouTube. And so, and as a result, you hear younger kids who are playing insane stuff right. from a very early age that you can figure out exactly what's going on. So it's, it's a crazy time. Amazing. It's, it's fun to hear you talk about it. How many years have you played guitar? Um, Roughly. I started when I was 13. So 28 years. That's crazy. 28 years. That's Dang. a long time, right? That's a long time. <laughs> I should be way but better. I, <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure a lot of people would consider you like a master guitar player, yeah. right? No, I don't, I don't know. Pretty, no, pretty I don't. good. No. But still, but I think that's it's fun to hear you talk about that because this road to mastery, it like doesn't really exist. Right. So it's fun to hear you say like you're learning every day and you, and different things speak to you at different times. And I love to go back to the fundamentals because it seems like the highest performers that I've had an opportunity to be around. It's always goes back to the most basic stuff. Like, does it sound well? <laughs> What's the time? The sound was yeah. like these basic things, but there's a different depth <laughs> to the higher level people have of these basics and you can there's always stuff to do and like right now i'm studying with this guy named gerald harsher and i was turned on to him by uh listening to julian lodge who's one of my favorite players talk and he's teaching me this concept called body mapping so okay. talk about Ooh. fundamentals yeah. it's really cool they would really appeal to you and so what we're learning is i'm, I'm getting on skype with him and we're studying the human skeleton and Dude, I have a skeleton right <laughs> over here, a table with a skeleton over here <laughs> in court. So, so, so it, I've, I've always felt like there've been some, some walls that I've hit technically of like things that where I just, I start to tense up and I can't really get past. And maybe one of the, I'm just beginning to study this, but maybe one of the, the things that's been holding me back is that I've had a, a, a wrong map of my body. So, okay. so for example, one of the first things he asked me is like, all right, your forearm, how many bones are, how many bones are here? Now I'm, I know you know that. <laughs> 
I should know that, that there's two bones. Uh, but but I had, I had never really considered it. All these years of playing guitar, I was just like, yeah. I just play. I was thinking of, of this as like one bone. I knew that it had like the space in between it, but then we yeah. looked at the skeleton and, and saw how the, those bones the radius turned over each around. other yeah. and rotated around because he looked at, he looked at performances of mine and I was performing as if there was one bone there. So instantly oh, that's amazing. That opened up all kinds of freedom. And so, so we're, but we're breaking down the entire body that way. So it's been really interesting and very cool. Have you got to the shoulder and the neck yet? Uh, yes, a little bit. I mean, we're, Cause we're going through and we're really, I'm really trying to palpate and, and really feel all these parts and the way that the head rests on the body, you know, guitar players are, have all kinds of back issues. And so it's, it's, we're, we're finding out that, you know, it is okay for guitar players to curl your spine a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, that's expected that you can still play with a certain amount of freedom with a curled spine, but it's when you, you start to get into this sort yeah. of position where, and that's, Next that's, I, I would practice a lot in this sort of, <laughs> but it's, it's one, it's a very fundamental thing that I hadn't really been thinking of for all this time. And I think if you spend enough time doing it as I have, you start to really look at, at every little aspect and, mm-hmm. <laughs> and question it. <laughs> that's amazing. It's like the awareness of subtle little things opens the door to like a whole new world. Right. Totally. Yeah. Well, you have to keep, you have to keep teaching me on that. And if you, well, yeah, I'm, anatomy I'm, just, I'm at, I'm at the beginning of that. I just got this book that he recommended called what every musician, every musician needs, to know. needs to know about the body. body. So oh, yeah, man, that's very cool. Yeah. I'm going to check that out for sure. I wish, I wish I would have learned this stuff 20 years ago, but you know. Yeah. And I'm sure you'll go into like the diaphragm and how it descends when you inhale and how you yes, create some pressure. That. Yeah, that's really cool. Have you seen Karate Kid? Well, of course. Mr. Miyagi has Daniel's son paint the fence, wax on, wax off, right? Which seemed yeah. kind of uh, frustrating for him. And did you have any teachers along the way, like a Mr. Miyagi that had you do something that at the time was frustrating or, but you're looking back, like you're glad you went through this. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, back in Lincoln, Nebraska, there was, there weren't a lot of guys who played jazz guitar. There was basically like two guys. And (laughs) one of them was my teacher, Peter. And yeah, there's a certain amount of, when you're a kid, you just want to play songs. You just wanted to play Nirvana and Pearl Jam. But I knew that there was some fundamental theoretical things that I had to, to learn. And Peter would really be, um, he was, he was a great teacher cause he was, he was firm enough. Um, but we also, we had fun, but yeah, it was like really learning how to practice with a metronome, learning scales and learning them really well. And at that time too, doing a lot of sight reading, I'm still horrible at sight reading. What does Most that guitarists mean? Are like just most musicians, music. but yeah, reading music. <laughs> what it sounds like. Uh, yeah, it's uh, most musicians learn by like, if you play saxophone, you're looking at the staff, you play the B flat and you play it and then you learn C and you play it. Guitar, most people just pick up and start playing and it can play a certain amount of music before they can read a single note. Because yeah. guitar is, is it's hard to read music on because of the way it's laid out in fourths. And uh, so it's, it's it, you know, on a piano, there's a C on the staff and there's one C on the piano. But on guitar, there's five different Cs. So it becomes oh. very complicated. You have to learn positions. Was that based on the fret? Like... The different C's going up yeah. the like neck of the guitar or exactly. Oh, which which okay. makes it really challenging because then you read a C on a staff and that could be in five different places on the guitar. Oh my gosh. So it's very confusing and there's a specific system that you have to follow to be able to really learn how to read music. Not to mention reading rhythms, which was always hard for me anyway, because that's like math. So I was like I was way 
I was playing by ear and playing really complicated stuff pretty quickly, but to go back and read the, it's still to this day. Like I read so slow. Cause I'm like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but thanks Peter for making yes, you, you do Peter. that. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Most of the guys, like the guys in your band or, or like professional high level musicians, can everyone uh, play by ear or just like hear something and play it or, cause that's amazes me that I could sing something or hum something and you could just play it. Yeah. I think, I think most of the guys, I think that's, that's a, that's a requirement for, for, for doing this. Like most of the, most of the guys in the band can't read music really either. I could, you know, PJ, mm -hmm. for example, like who's by far the, the best musician that in the on that stage for sure he doesn't read music which is insane because he plays the, the crazy stuff <laughs> that is like the most sophisticated complicated harmonic sort of things and you know if you put a sheet of music in front of him he'd be like uh <laughs> <laughs> that's so cool i think that's what makes music universal is like like speaking English or writing English versus Spanish or, but just like hearing and being able to play like he, so he can clearly speak music like, Oh yeah. And everyone totally. in the world understands what he's saying. Yeah. That's Absolutely. so cool. It makes me think of on tour. Does any moment come to mind where you're playing and there's this uh, big energy or a moment where you just take a second and take it in? I really try, I consciously try to check in with that throughout the night, but usually the first time that that happens is as we're about to go on stage and the lights come down and the, the crowd, like that's always a really special moment. But I, I try to stop and that's another sort of uh, meditative experience and try to stop getting caught up in whatever thinking I'm doing and, and just try to connect to there's a very clear sense is you, you feel it wherever we go in the world of just the love from the audience that's beaming up to the stage and then coming back from the music. And it kind of creates this, this feedback loop. And it's, it's very, it's palpable if, if you can sort of drop into that feeling and, and not get carried away by other things. What about, can you tell me what in-ears are and does that make it more difficult for moments like that? Well, let's talk about, because I mean, probably a lot of people listening to this aren't musicians and haven't maybe thought about this. Yep. Because I know when I first started performing, when I was a teenager, I was like, oh yeah, of course, this is interesting. When the band's performing on stage, they're listening to a different sound system than the audience is listening to. So, so there's the, it's, it's, so there's speakers that are out in front that are beaming the sound of the concert out to the audience. But on stage, we're listening to each other and to, to our own mix of the instruments that we want to play along to. So we're able to perform in time and together. Mm -hmm. and so that's called a monitor system. And so, like the first band to have an onstage monitor system was the Grateful Dead. Actually, they developed the technology. So, like if Whoa. you saw the beat, if you saw the Beatles play at Shea Stadium, they didn't have monitors. They had they couldn't hear what they were performing. It was <laughs> just all beaming out to the audience. <laughs> so it was just crazy. That was part of the reason the Beatles stopped touring because it was just a miserable experience. It was really hard hear to each hear other. hear each other. Yeah. Um, so so then. The, there's a monitor system that, that shoots the music back to the musicians. And then really it became the standard. I mean, I don't know when it really became the standard. I know when we could afford to get in-ear monitors, <laughs> you wear a, a radio pack that then beams the other, uh, the other instruments directly into your ears. And um, that, that means that wherever I, I walk on stage, I still have the same mix. So I never lose the, the beat or the drums, or it's especially important for vocalists because then they can sing on pitch better because mm. they can, they can hear themselves because notoriously a lot of 
of singers who are performing live, especially with a loud band that can't hear their own voice and that causes them to sing out of pitch. Oh yeah, that makes sense. But in-ear monitors, it does take an adjustment to get used to it because then it just, it's like you're, you're just performing with a set of headphones. And it, it, I've kind of described it. It's kind of like, you know, like the difference between, <laughs> it's like, like wearing a condom. Because it's 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 like because it's like quieter. You can't feel the instruments as much. You feel kind of cut off. So it doesn't initially. It doesn't feel as good. But you get used to it. It also can can save your hearing. Uh, it can save your hearing because it because the the speakers you know will blast you. And you can listen at a lower volume and still hear everything. But notoriously musicians have, uh, have hearing damage. I have tinnitus. I go to bed every night with ringing in my ears. Sorry about that. That would drive me nuts. It's you just, get used to it. You just yeah. you kind of tune it out. But I also, I sleep with a white noise machine. Yeah. Does that help a lot? That helps a lot. Yeah. Our brains are so smart. How, when we have something constant, how it can then, tune it out to some degree or totally amazing with the in-ears. Then do you just have to take them out to connect to the audience? Yeah. I mean, I, I take them out a lot to connect with the audience just to hear the space of the room, but also we set up mics on the audience so that we can hear the audience. Okay. So you can hear. Okay. Yeah. Because, because otherwise then it just feels like you're just in a studio. Okay, so you still have the pulse of the audience in your ears. Yeah. Is there a performance? I'm curious, like like a game day for an athlete, you, their preparation, et cetera, to the match or to, the, to going into the game. Could you describe like a game day for on tour, like maybe even night before, like is sleep important and then day of the show? I love a routine and, and I get into a routine on tour. I'm always trying to get a good night's rest. I think that's the most important thing. After all these years, I think most of the problems in my life can be traced back to me not getting the right amount of sleep. Uh, when I'm not getting that, it's, it makes everything so much harder. So hopefully I've had a, a nice, responsible night the night before. Got what city bed. are we in? Well, let's, let's say we're in uh, Buenos Aires. Yeah. Or no, because that show got canceled because of COVID. So yeah. let's say yeah. we're let's say we're in Rio. We're in Rio. Did we so drive usually, in or fly in the night? Like, well, have we, we been there a day? So so we in Rio, we were we were hubbed out of Rio for all the Brazil performances. So we had played the night before and then flown back to Rio, gotten oh. back to the hotel at like two or three in the morning. So I go to sleep. It's rough. At eight hours. I usually get up. I try to do a meditation first thing after I've had some coffee. Mm-hmm. I got to get that coffee first and two large glasses of water. Try to do that first thing to stay hydrated. When I'm at home, I try to do the water with a little bit of salt and lemon um, because a, a doctor recommended that to me once. And that does really hydrate you really quickly. It feels real good. I don't always have access to that on the road, but sometimes I do. Um, I have some coffee do a morning meditation, depending on what I've got lined up for the day. I try to do at least 20 minutes, but sometimes when I have more momentum, I'll go a lot longer than that. And then a workout. And on the road, I, I usually play tennis and because I've been lucky to, to find a lot of places to play. So I'll go play tennis, come back, shower. Maybe we'll have a sound check. So we'll go down to the venue and we'll run through a couple things and maybe I'll, I'll work on some of the sounds that, that I'm doing with my guitar tech. And then we'll either stay at the venue or, or go back to the hotel. But, but then I'll usually, after sound check, I'll take the guitar with me either back to the hotel or backstage and I'll just continue to practice. And maybe I've got a, a couple things that I'm working on of something that I wanna try in one of the solos or maybe it's something that has nothing to do, but I'm playing guitar. I like to, to do that. Then have some dinner and, uh, and then backstage, usually just hanging out with the guys before we go on stage. We usually like to take some time to connect. 
but I usually got the guitar in my hands and I'm still sort of noodling all the way up to the performance. That's so cool. And that's, that's generally the, the routine. Do you guys as a group, do you have like a prayer or a, any kind of saying or, or a way that you come together before every show or does it change? Yeah, well, no, we have a very specific huddle that we do every night. We put our hands in and we say, hoorah, hmm. which was from, I can't remember. It was from some, there was like a, a Navy movie with Ashton Kutcher and Kevin Costner that Jesse saw. And that's, that's what like the Navy SEALs said before their missions. They said, hoorah. <laughs> so we do that every night. <laughs> that's so cool. <laughs> and does it connect? Do you feel like? Yeah. Yeah. We have to do it. We we're pretty superstitious. So yeah. we have to do that every night before we go out. Yeah. I think you just hey, described hands in, <laughs> hands, in. hands in who, who leads it or is it? Everyone does it. it. it, it everyone does it, yeah. One, two, three, hoorah. Hands in. Hoorah! Hoorah! <laughs> That's so awesome. Uh, okay, so in Rio, once we get on stage, are you going to get in that flow state you, you talked about a bit? Does that happen every night for you? No. You, know, you, you try. I think, I think eventually I get into it and... But I think on a night to night basis, it will, I think every night I'll get into it to a certain extent. How do you know you're in it? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, there's, there's a feeling of, of being connected to the, to the music, to the band and to the audience. And there's a feeling of connection that happens. And sometimes, sometimes I go up there and it's, it can be harder to find, but most nights I can get it because most nights it's pretty easy to connect with the audience because usually people have been waiting months, if not years, if we're in another country to come see us perform and, and their excitement is, is infectious. So, so that's, that's usually not hard to do, but some nights it just feels like, ah, kind of like I'm not happy with the sound or maybe I can't hear certain things I want to hear. But I'd usually try to take that challenge. I, I try to figure out how I can be connected uh, in spite of whatever's going on. And, and I think usually, usually I can find it. Got it. For the mental talk, does this happen? Because I'm thinking in, in sport, or let's take tennis, for example, if uh, you may get nervous, a lot of people get nervous closing out a match or before a match, there's a lot of nerves or anxiety or fear about the performance. Um, does that happen for you in music or like, because I know it's a little different with you being, you're also, you're with a team, a group, but yeah, I definitely get that. And I get that. I wouldn't usually get that for just a normal show that we're doing on tour. We've done that so many times. I know that, that we're going to be okay. Mm -hmm. I get, I get those nerves before usually live television performances because, because those it seems like the stakes are higher for that because if yeah. you mess up, there's, there's really no safety net. So for something like the Grammys or for uh, the Oscar, we performed on the Oscars. So I, I had a lot of nerves before that because it's just me and Adam starting the song. And I was playing a simple part, but if I messed up, it was all on me. <laughs> so right. that, that, that makes it a little bit different. So I've definitely, definitely, that's been a challenge to deal with those sorts of nerves. I've had moments where I've questioned everything. Like, wh why did I choose to do this with my life? Because it's <laughs> so intense. Because it's so intense. Yeah. Just, just the anticipation. <laughs> and, yeah. and even after it's over and it's gone well, you're still just horrified. You, you, you're almost hanging on to that that physical feeling of, of, of panic. But I think over the years I've gotten better at dealing with that. And I think meditation has really helped with that in being able to divide and conquer those sensory experiences into what they are, which is just flowing sensory experiences that are constantly changing, arising and passing. Yeah. And if you, if you can break it down to that, 
then they they lose their their power to to grip and overwhelm you and that's easier said than done but i I feel like i've I've been able to get better at it over the years like so with the the oscars when it's just you and adam did you use meditation did it help yeah absolutely is that yeah your main tool? Yeah. It was just constantly, uh, sitting and breathing, trying to use different techniques, zooming into the, the feeling of the anxiety. Like what does it actually feel like? Where is it happening in my body? Uh, does it usually happen for you? For, for me, it's in my chest, chest, uh, that particular type of anxiety. Um, Uh And then, then to really just focus on it and then to just feel that it is just for me, this energetic pulsating flowing sort of feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I can, I think what happens when I am overwhelmed is, is that the mental talk married with that, that overwhelming body sensation, those together it's will just completely freak you out. Mm-hmm. But if you can break down the mental talk and separate it from the, the body sensations and you're going to be in a much better position. And it's also, yeah, working with mental talk. If you actually really start to listen to what the mental talk is saying, you, you start to realize that you can't really trust everything you think because it's ridiculous. <laughs> it's kind of ridiculous. And, and it, yeah. in your own brain contradicts itself on a second to second basis. If you're really listening to, to what's coming up and, mm-hmm. you, and so then your mental talks starts to lose some of its power too. But that's, that's, again, that's a years long process that you start to get in touch with through meditative practices. Once you start playing, is it gone? There are moments I, I have had intense flow experiences where, where I'm just in it. Everything's perfect. The music is playing itself and those that does happen. But also sometimes anxiety comes back. And so sometimes you have to in real time, check in with those emotions and remind yourself that, that you're, you're not going to, to just get completely carried away by them. And it comes back to being in your body. In that case, during an actual performance, maybe rather than, than zooming into like the, the sensory experience of anxiety, maybe I would, turn towards focusing on, on a particular instrument or maybe uh, focusing on the pressure of which I'm holding my pick and just sort of monitoring that or something to take me out of that negative talk space or the, the feeling of, of the body anxiety. So that yeah. would be turning, turning away from it as opposed to turning towards it. Although sometimes maybe I'll just, maybe I'll just be like, yes. Okay. There's the experience of anxiety. It's coming back up. That's okay. That's expected. We've been here before. Of course you're feeling that, you know, you're performing here on live TV and this would be overwhelming for anyone. Yeah. Almost like a friendship. Like, hello, (laughs) you're here because this is a big deal. Yeah. And that's, that's the equanimity piece coming in and and being okay with whatever comes up and just sort of greeting it with open arms is, is part of the experience of being alive. And I imagine all that practice you do helps to like, Hey, to at some point you let go and just trust that you can play these notes or you can do what you're doing. Yeah, I think so. And I think the experience of having been through as many of those performances that obviously really helps too. Um, Because because I've, I've had those feelings of dread. I'm like, well, we're totally going to screw this up. And even when we have screwed up, it's like, it's not that bad. We're just playing pop music. Nobody's life is at stake. You know, <laughs> we're not, we're not, we're not like doing, we're not doing brain surgery up here, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you miss a note, it's not going to like destroy someone's experience at the, show going to see no no it won't even though even though the physical sensation when i really miss a note on stage the physical feeling of that is is so overwhelming for me because because and maybe i could be like a little bit out of it and thinking about something else and if i hit something wrong then instantly my body tells me like oh wrong (laughs) back to the show 
if you listen back to the show, it was like a split second. Yeah. And probably no one other than maybe my guitar tech who's just listening to my, like actually even noticed. That's where it becomes funny, right? If you can see yeah. like, it's kind of funny that this, it's great that you care so much, but in the pers- bigger scheme, like how big of a deal is it? doesn't matter. Yeah. That's funny. Cause I put, uh, Sarah's laughing at, uh, my wife, Sarah has, has a, a podcast and is a director, producer, like interviewer, professional and the way she does questions. And I have like this crazy map, that um, I drew. <laughs> <laughs> but awesome. I put like JV in the middle and I put, uh, just some, just words that popped in my head, compassion, kind, deep, a lot of depth. I put perfection. Cause I had this feeling like there's this perfectionism and you just, that's what you, I feel like you were just talking about. Like, uh, sensitive. I put smile fun. You like to have fun, like not take like things to too fun. serious, <laughs> but you like to go deep and go micro too, you know, which I really love about you and generous. You're so generous. I'm sure all your friends know, uh, but go to dinner with James. I've never been to dinner, no matter who's at the table where James hasn't paid for the dinner before anyone even thinks about it or has a chance, like, which I think is amazing. Like that kindness and generosity. Like, I just, I just don't want to, I just don't want to split up the check that takes so long at the end. It's just, and everybody's like, well, I don't know. I didn't have drinks. So I'm like, no, come on, let's just get out of here. But wait, is that true? Or is it, I feel like generosity is like part of who you are. Like why, sure. why is this? Oh, okay. I think I was lucky to, to have uh, generous parents who, who helped a lot of people out in our community. And so I think there was, there was always that example there. And as we record this on mother's day, you know, my mom was, was especially, she was just, she was always out there helping people and, and not just like, not just, people who was convenient to help, but, mm-hmm. but people who really needed it and, and it, where it was tough sometimes, <laughs> let's say. Um, so that was always, that was always a really good example. And I, I just feel like I've been so blessed. I'm, I'm just always looking for more opportunities. I feel like I'm not doing enough and I hope to find new ways to, to give back just because I've been so lucky. Well, I think you give back a lot. <laughs> I mean, just your nature, just who you are. It's, it really is a gift to be around, around you. It's, so I appreciate who you are, your energy. And I know you guys have so many fans as a band. There's a lot of people that appreciate your music. And, oh, thanks, man. Yeah. Well, I could say exactly all the same things about you. No. You were, well, before I met you, you know, the way uh, Nate and everybody talked about you, I was like, wow this is a heavy dude. And, and, it, <laughs> nice. and it turned out to be the case. Nice. Well, I think I've taken enough of your time. Actually, do you have time for one more minute? Actually, it'd be like two minutes. Yes. Okay. Yes. So you go, I have my phone and I'm putting on a timer for one minute. You go on, you've been on a couple 10 day silent retreats, right? Yeah. Can we do a minute of silence and then can you teach us like just a little bit? Can we put 10 days into a minute? Essentially. 10 days into a minute. <laughs> what should I think uh, about if, cause I think there's a lot of, I do you think, first of all, do you think a, a 10 day retreat or a silent retreat would help everyone across the board? Or is there a certain person that, that that would speak to more? I think everyone could benefit from it. Now, whether or not everyone would actually go do it, I, I think there's a, a small percentage of the, the population on the earth that will actually follow through and do that. But I think everyone would benefit from it because I think to experience some of the states that I think religious leaders have talked about, I think you have to really disrupt your, your daily routine. I think you have to really give yourself the space to build the momentum to access those sorts of states is what I will say. And, and we could talk about it as much as you can. And the, the thing with, with a lot of these practices is you could read a thousand books about it, but unless you mm-hmm. sit your ass down and actually do the work and try to experience it, 
you're not going to understand what they're talking about. So yeah, I would recommend it to anybody. Um, and, and it's, it's very difficult, but it's, it's, it's very rewarding. I think the, the challenging part of the retreat is the beginning. Uh, I think the first two, three, four days. And I think you, you come out of the other end potentially with the, with the new experience of, of just what it is to a, a lighter way of existing in the world. That's what I'll say. Mm-hmm. But again, I can't really put any of it. You have to do it. Words. You got, you got to do it. And that starts with a, a daily practice. But one thing I will say about it too, is a good friend of mine who's a leading researcher in meditation, David Creswell, he told me early on, before I had done a retreat, uh-huh. um, I think I, I was kind of like, well, you know, I'm building my daily practice, you know, I'm up to, you know, half an hour sits. And, it, and he said, a lot of people feel like they need to work up to a retreat. Um, they need to have some level of skill or experience before they go to a, a retreat. But he, he was, wanted to flip that model around and said, the way that you'll get a daily practice mm-hmm. is by going on a retreat and actually tasting, feeling it, tasting yeah, what it could actually be like. And because I feel like after, after my first retreat, I was like, Oh, that's what this was all about. I had, I'd spent a lot of time meditating and, and kind of building fundamental skills up to that point, but I didn't really understand what it was about. If it had, I had done a retreat sooner, I think uh, I, I would have been, let's just say every time I come back from a retreat, I've become more committed to my daily practice. So that's, 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 that's something there. So I would recommend it to anybody. It's good advice. That makes sense. So the people that have stuck with us, this is a treat. Then (laughs) we can sit for a minute. If I'm going on this retreat, are you giving me some kind of instruction to work with, or am I just being silent? Well, the retreats that I've gone on and my favorite teacher is a guy named Shinzen Young, and he has specific techniques that he teaches. And so while most of the day you're, you're sitting in silence, there are periods throughout the day where he does give instruction and you can so start for our to learn. one minute retreat. You're our mm-hmm. master. A one minute retreat. How would I break it down in one minute? I feel like if I tried to start to explain that, see, I'm, I'm, this is why I'm not a master, but basics. How could I break it down? <laughs> I break it down. Um, okay. So if we, the, the, the signature technique of Shinzen Young's system is called see, hear, feel. Okay. Okay. So I'll teach a very quick, simple version of this. But if, if you want to go more in depth, you can download uh, an app called Bright Mind. Okay. And this teaches those awesome. techniques more in depth. Okay. Awesome. So, so with this technique, all you do, it's, it's a, a practice of noting and labeling. Um, and some people call it choiceless awareness. So rather than just fixating on one object, like you would, if you were just following your breath, mm-hmm. you'll let your attention go wherever it wants to go. And then in a very gentle matter of fact voice, you label where your attention is. And so we're going to use three different labels. Okay. See, hear, and feel. So if you find your attention grabbed by something that you're seeing visually, either what you're seeing in this room, or if you have your eyes closed, you see like the patterns behind your eyelids, you would label that see. But we can also see inside of our brains, yep. Ment- mental images. So if I close my eyes and if I said right now, horse, a mental image of a horse flashes. So y- you see that. Um, and following all these, especially following the mental images, you want to get really curious about 
you know, when does the image start and how does it fade away? How big is it? Where is it located? Um, is it in detail? Is it fuzzy? Is it a, a solid image or is it floating or fading? Um, so that would be the C category. Got it. Here, you could hear the sounds of the room, you could hear the dog next door barking. That would be the exterior sounds. Or you can hear in, which would be mental talk, mental chatter. It could be like right now I'm saying to myself, I've already made this explanation too detailed and too long. <laughs> and you get curious about what, that's, what that mental talk sounds like. Yeah. You know, what, what voice is it? Um, you know, the space in between the words. Where, where does it come from and where does it fade out into? That's hearing. And then feel. You could feel on the outside, you could feel the temperature of the room, uh, feeling of my legs on the chair, and feel in would be your emotional body sensations. So you could, you could feel, I could feel a little bit of self-consciousness um, trying to explain this to everybody. Mm -hmm. Or I could, I could feel uh, a sense of impatience because maybe I'm hungry for lunch. And then what does that feel like in going into that feeling? So those are the three different labels that you can use, see, hear, feel. And so you would just sit and we could sit for a minute and I'll start off by doing the labels that, that I'm hearing as sort of training wheels. And then, then we'll just be silent for the rest of uh, it for the rest of it. Yeah. So I'll okay. explain. So if, if I sat down, should I do like a minute and 20 seconds to give us your explanation or sure. Yeah. A minute. So you yeah. get a 20 second minute. buffer. I get a 20 so that everyone sits for one minute, which seems you went 10 days. It seems like a joke, but a minute can it's be tough time. for a lot a of people. Can be tough. And a, this is a starting point, right? And maybe we can all feel it. Like you said, cause until totally. you just sit and do it, you don't know what it is really. Like you're just talking totally. about it. Okay. Yeah. So we got 120. You tell me go and I hit start. Okay, go. Go. All right, stretch up and settle in. Okay, so I'm going to take you through how I would experience it. Feel. I'm feeling the warmth of the room because I haven't turned on the AC. See. I'm seeing the, the pattern of my eyelids. Feel, feeling the breath come out of my nose. All right, so just let your attention go where it goes. One minute. All right, pretty quick. Yeah. How do we come so, back? What do you think? Well, usually you'd come back with like a Q&A session. Ideally, we'd have a little bit more time, but that gives you a little taste. That's amazing. You, you, would you recommend us students to journal what we felt? We Sure, yeah. Journaling's great. Um, yeah, it's... Uh, it's that's a those are the basic instructions but i mean you could spend a lifetime just just doing that practice i heard the car drive by it's like chopper went then i heard the voice because i hadn't thought about like hearing your own voice as part of that hearing aspect but i'm like james has been, been, had him on here too long he's hungry but so then that's like a, uh, it's fun it's a challenge okay you gotta let this go 
back to a minute, right? Is this too long? Well, the last thing that I'll, that I'll say about it, it's so there's, and, and this is uh, how Shenzhen Young teaches it, which I think is, is brilliant. There's three core skills that you're building when you sit down to meditate and it's concentration, mm-hmm. clarity, and equanimity. And those are, every time we sit down, we're working on those three skills. So concentration, that's just the ability to sit down and do it without, uh, you know, just getting carried away or, or stopping or just sitting down and then just going into planning or, or thinking about the past. Yeah. The concentration, every time you, you return to whatever the specific instructions of the meditation are, you're building that concentration muscle. Um, and then the clarity piece, you're, you're figuring out what's actually happening. Like in your case, you realized, Oh, I'm listening to the helicopter, but at the same time, there is mental chatter. That's, that's, you know, asking me about James and, and whether I've been there a lot, that's clarity because maybe, maybe before you wouldn't have even noticed that the mental chatter was going on. Most of the time people don't even understand that there's a, all this, this talk happening. And that's why meditation's hard in the beginning. And then the equanimity piece, which is maybe the most important piece is just being okay with whatever comes up. So right. having the attitude of like, okay, I was listening to, to the sounds and, and then I got carried away in, in thinking about something else, but that's okay. I'm returning to the practice. I'm still working on my three core skills when I'm sitting down. So it's all good. And that's why also when you're, when you're doing labeling, you use that, you want to use a voice in your head or whether you're speaking it out loud, that's a neutral, calm sort of voice as opposed to see here. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You want, you want there to be a sense of ease to it. Like, like we want to be friendly to ourselves. So that's, that's what, uh, I don't know. I really, I really like that practice. And, and like I said, the, the best way to learn this is from the, the source itself. So you go Google Shinzen Young or, or the bright mind app, or there's, I, and if, if that approach doesn't resonate with you, there's lots of other approaches to meditation too. Yeah. Well, thanks. You gave us, I mean, you gave everyone that experience and so much valuable information. So Thanks so much for your time. Hey, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy this show, please subscribe, share with your friends, and leave a five-star review. Every listener matters to us, so please leave your comments along the way to let us know how we're doing. Until next time, wishing you all the wealth, health, and happiness in the world.